TED Audio Collective. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Canva. HBR presents... You're listening to After Hours. I'm Young Me. I'm Felix. And we are here with Francis Fry. Hi, Francis. Hi, everybody. So good to be here. So Francis Fry is our colleague and beloved friend, expert in issues of diversity and inclusion. And we couldn't be happier to have you. So first of all, before we get going, Francis, a year of lockdown, you clearly have invested in a really good microphone because you sound amazing. Yeah, so I got a truckload of Amazon delivered and sent back seven eighths <laughs> of a truckload after experimenting with everything. So I feel like I'm that guy, you know, that guy that when you're like, oh, this is the best that and this is the best that. I pretty much know the best everything now for audio. So you actually know the make and model of the microphone you're using? I do, only because I tried out maybe 20, 25 microphones. Wow. So you found even among similarly priced microphones, big differences. Oh, huge differences. It's like if you want to go to the Toyota production system and you like, oh, they have an and-on cord to pull when there's a problem. So a company's going to just take the and-on cord. You can't just take the microphone. It's the whole audio system. I'm going to steer this conversation. Okay. Okay. I can actually hear listeners <laughs> turning this off. I can actually right here. hear them bailing, thinking, wait a minute. I did not sign up for microphone reviews. Fair point. It's a fair point. I'll keep you on this show afterwards, Francis, and we'll have a private conversation. Okay. I really feel like I'd like to amortize my knowledge, Felix. I appreciate that. <laughs> Thank you. So, way, way back when we were getting the podcast started, you came on the show and we had a really, really wonderful conversation about all things, diversity, inclusion, leadership. And since then, you have spent so much of your time working with companies ranging from Uber to Pinterest to WeWork. And I'm hoping you've got some takeaways for us. I'm hoping I do too. So here you are. We have insights from Francis Fry coming up. Okay, Francis, insight number one. Insight number one is that a lot of people think about diversity and inclusion, and it's the wrong sequence. I've seen so many organizations that bring in diverse talent and they get on a treadmill of diversity And inclusion doesn't always follow. 
Mm. But when I watch organizations become more inclusive, diversity immediately follows. So inclusion first, diversity will follow. That's amazing. You know, now that you say it, it's so fabulous. I must have said diversity and inclusion a million times, and I never thought that it's the wrong sequence. Yeah. On the one hand, it makes sense. But on the other hand, if I'm an executive and I've been put in charge of improving diversity and inclusion in my organization, one of the nice things about diversity is that you can come up with an easy metric. You can simply count. And if you can change what those numbers look like, you can claim success or you can claim progress. Whereas inclusion, that feels more nebulous to me. So what do you mean by inclusion and how do you know if you have it? So inclusion has two parts to it. One is despite any difference that any of us brings to the table, we feel safe and welcome. And then precisely because of our uniqueness, we're celebrated. So there's a despite and a because of. And they go in that sequence. So there's like the JV inclusion, which is we have to make sure that people of color, despite being people of color, their voice is desired. Despite being queer, it feels safe for me here. So there's like a safe and welcome part of it, despite. And then there is each of us has a really unique sort of accumulation of things, all of our lived experiences, all of our successes, our failures, they're all threaded together. And we're celebrated because of that distinction. And that might sound obvious, but we spend an awful lot of time celebrating sameness. Can you talk a little bit about, say, if I'm a candidate and I'm looking at different organizations, knowing which of, say, three or four jobs that I'm thinking about, three or four companies that I'm thinking about, which of these will eventually feel inclusive seems so difficult because it takes time, it takes maybe rocky experiences where you really see for the first time, am I welcome here? How do I know? Yeah, so you look at whether others are included. So, for example, if the demographics are sort of heavily skewed, probably hasn't been inclusive. Mm -hmm. If when you're interviewing, everyone brings up the same thing. If people are all looking for the same thing in you, or is it sparking variety or various aspects of your personality, or are you just being hired because you're the CFO who cares about this, 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 this? Is it your leadership and your competence that's being sought after? I think the fact that you emphasize the celebration of distinctiveness, I think that's really important because I think it's relatively easy for an organization to embrace you, to make you feel welcome, as long as you act just like everybody else. Yes. And so you can end up feeling super included, but you don't necessarily feel like you're able to be authentic. And most importantly, because sometimes I feel like authenticity is just one piece of it. But most importantly, you don't feel like you get to make the sharpest contribution to the company because you're sanding away the edges of that distinctiveness in order to be included. Yeah, it's beautifully put. And I do think that sanding metaphor is really good. I hadn't thought of it quite like that until you were speaking. That's really beautiful. I think it also means that your organization might be much more diverse than you realize. Oh, I think It's just yeah, everybody has so learned, good. you taught yes. everyone to fit in. We're all sublimating our difference. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So you just never see it because yeah. I don't feel like I can live it up. Yeah. But this is the point about explicitness. 
with respect to diversity, you can count it. There's an easy metric. With respect to inclusion, as an executive, you can go around feeling like, I figured it all out. Everybody's feeling included. But you actually... You have no idea. You actually have no idea. (laughs) And so it sort of begs the question, how do you know? How do you really interrogate? Well, I'll tell you what. We have what we call an inclusion dial that goes safe, welcome, celebrated, cherished, or none of the above. And we ask people in a spot meeting, just show the dial, just do it anonymous, let's get a pulse. First thing, people are stunned that how they're feeling is not how everyone else is feeling. Mm-hmm. I've done this in organizations that have beautiful cultures with the top 100 people. They are stunned to find that some people are none of the above and that 15 or 20% are physically and emotionally safe and no higher. And what that does is it lets everyone who's feeling you know, on the really high end of the inclusion dial Your obligation is to look out for the invisible people on the low end of the inclusion dial. And if you're on the low end of inclusion dial, you get to just stand down for a little while. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Just put the oxygen mask on yourself. Mm. And in my experience, it's often related to this earlier idea of fit that we talked about. You sort of have this mental image of the person that fits perfectly for the job that you're looking for. And you have very little diversity to start out from, then almost by definition, you're not going to find someone who will be different on one or several dimensions, given that same definition of fit. Yeah, I find that we're overconfident in our claims of fit. That is, we all think we know it. We're all talking about something that's a little bit different. In fact, most organizations, I suggest that they don't use the word fit. Instead, they mm-hmm. double-click and give the five or six operational manifestations of fit that we can all agree on. So we can agree to what the operational manifestations are. And if we don't, we should acknowledge that we're all talking about fit differently. So fit is a summary statistic that causes more harm than good. I love this line of reasoning. I am someone who believes that culture is the connective tissue of any healthy organization. At the same time, I do feel like that it's used to filter people out all the time. And I think we are way too sloppy in how we Mm. use words like fit. And I think we need to be much more precise about what we mean by words like that so that we don't use it to actually create these artificial barriers to people who might act in different ways or might carry themselves in different ways. I mean, I think a good example of that is the word professionalism. Professionalism is a word that I think for young people today especially, we need to better define. We sure do. We need yeah. to be much more explicit about what we mean Professionalism, by Professionalism, you're not acting like a 50-year-old. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. You're not acting like how I would act right. in that way, which, you know, and by the way, I'm a dinosaur. But do I think professionalism is real? Absolutely. Yeah. And do I think that yeah. there is a modicum of behavior we have to expect in the workplace? Absolutely. Are there boundaries we have to make sure we don't cross? Do people need to exercise restraint? Absolutely. I think all of those things are true. On the other hand, I think we need to be explicit by what we mean by that or else risk really sublimating people's personalities and making them feel like they can't be safe in any way. I think we have a bunch of words now, young me, that are summary statistics that we want to know the distribution under them. So fit, professionalism, there's probably a few others that we care very much about, but we can't have faith that they all mean the same thing. And we probably have to update them every few years. Yeah. I knew you brought in some other insights you wanted to share with us. Let's move to the next thing. What do you have for us? 
The future is very queer. Mm. So the research that I have seen of the upcoming generations, less than half are going to identify themselves as straight in any like confident way. And so gender is fluid, sexual orientation is fluid, just all of it is very fluid. So what we grew up with, which was a lot of binary, it doesn't even occur to current (laughs) 20-year-olds and the teenagers behind them, even less. Whereas this is really hard for 70, 60, 50-year-olds. What I find really interesting to think about is, say, for probably a generation of people even before us, these changes can somehow be frightening. They can make you feel insecure to live in a world where you thought, oh, there are men and women, and now everyone has a much more fluid identity. And one of the things I wished is that instead of focusing on the clumsy behavior, that often comes with not quite knowing what to do and how to think about this world, that we pay much more attention to intentions and to kindness and to goodwill, as opposed to what I feel right now is we're often paying so much attention to is someone using the right terminology, is someone using the right kinds of descriptions for the variation and the fluidity that we see. And that seems to underestimate just how profound these kinds of changes are for many people and how all of a sudden I have to figure out how to deal with situations that I never thought I would have to deal with because gender fluidity as an idea didn't even exist in my mind. And in particular, when we see radical changes, I always hope that in the end, we're pointing towards good intentions, we're pointing towards kindness much more than we count on the quote-unquote correct behavior or the correct type of language. I like that, Felix. And that's like those of us for whom this feels like a fast pace of change, how we need to be kind to folks and make it possible. I think we also, like I do think the future is arguably going to be very queer. And yet it's still rare to see role models, like go to all of your top organizations. It's still rare to see queer role models. It's still rare to have people be championed and really be understood because it's such a private thing that you almost don't want to talk about it. So I think it's really important for us to have great role models for the casualness with which the fluidity can occur because that creates a big tent for other people to come in it. So I haven't thought of myself as queer as much as I have over the last four years in my whole life. Because just I was who I was. It didn't matter. Mm -hmm. But how important it is for these younger generations to see queer people thriving and having it be okay and casual is really important. So on the one hand, I want to make it very palatable for those people for whom history is occurring very fast. And I want to make it super safe and welcoming and awesome for people who happen to find themselves on those spectrums of fluidity. Yeah. At the end of the day, 
what's going to save us despite all of the polarization and the tumult that we are all experiencing on so many dimensions in our professional and in our cultural lives. What's going to save us is empathy, it's warmth, it's a collective sense of humanity. And this is why I think, Felix, your point about clumsiness is really important. You know, in my experience, there are times when I have stumbled over my words. I've said the wrong things <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> many, many times, particularly Absolutely. we find ourselves in front of very diverse audiences all the time. And I think if people sense that it's coming from a place of warmth, of an attempt to really embrace everybody in the room, if it's coming from a place of kindness, acceptance, openness, then people will forgive anything. They really will. I have found this to be the case. And they are happy to kind of reach out and sort of guide you to a more elegant way of speaking or a more delicate way of expressing something. Yeah. I remember one time, this is a conversation, Felix, you were having in a very different context when we were coaching our students about traveling. We were asking them to travel to different parts of the world and asking them to be respectful of other people's culture. And they had all kinds of questions, like, if I go to this culture, if I do this, will it be perceived as impolite if I do this? And Felix, I'll never forget, you stood up and you said to everybody, look, if you make the wrong move, if you do the wrong thing, people can tell if it's coming from a good place. This is the part that's universal. People will sense if you are trying, if you're going out of your way to be respectful. They will sense that and they will forgive your clumsiness. But if they feel like it's coming from a place of bitterness or resentment or suspicion, then it's a completely different story. Yeah. And so I think it's just incumbent upon all of us, wherever you're coming from, if you feel like things are happening around you that you don't quite understand, to start from a place of, I'm going to try to understand this. I come from a place of love. I know that sounds really corny, but if you you know just come from a place of warmth, that's a starting point for this stuff, right? Yeah. I sometimes think of this as, you know, with an interracial family, I know we are the future. I know in a few years, everybody will be mixed somehow that even talking about differences will take on a completely different tone from the tone that it is today. But while I feel very comfortable, mm. I sometimes run the risk of forgetting that it's not so a matter, of course, for many other people. And it can be scary and it can be, oh my God, what will this world look like and how do I fit in? It's one of these almost tragic moments that come with all these changes that on the one hand, you have all the people who feel excluded because they're the future, but the future is not quite here yet. And then you have all the people who feel excluded already by the anticipation of That's a future so that is not here yet. And as a result, we're screaming at each other. And really, it's angst on both sides that I hope we can find ways to bridge. When we talk about the inclusion dial, one of the things we caution companies and groups to do is to take care not to move one person or one group up the inclusion dial while moving another group mm. or another person down. You I just said that. it far more eloquently than that. <laughs> Isn't it annoying when he does that? He does uh, that it happens all, all the time. <laughs> Every week I'm on the podcast with him. <laughs> okay, this is so wonderful. We'll be back with more. Mm. 
So Francis, one of the reasons I think it's so timely to have you on the show is, you know, among everything else we've been through this year, it's been, at least in our country, just a real reckoning, a real reckoning with respect to race. In a narrow sense, around the Black Lives Matter movement, but in a much broader sense, I think we have all engaged in a lot of reflection about the role that race plays across every dimension of our lives. And so I'm wondering if you can share an insight or two that you have gleaned from your work with companies and different organizations and people that can help us frame some of what we've all experienced this past year. So one of the things that we have found that sounds surprising at first is that meaningful change needs to happen very quickly. So we've all as a country just experienced something that, you know, some of the people in the country have been experiencing for hundreds of years, like the intrinsic racism in the country and how the color of your skin can so greatly influence how you're experienced and what your experience is. And so we think, well, if it's happened for hundreds of years, it's going to take a long time to overcome. And our research and our work with companies shows just the opposite, that in order to have meaningful change, you can think of it that you need to have enough momentum. So you can think of it as speed bumps. And if you don't have enough momentum, you're not going to get over the bumps. So what we have to do is decide and get the collective will to act. So it's much, much better, although it sounds intimidating, it's much better to work on things for a concentrated period of time. We find it's also much stickier. So that's how you can get the meaningful change to occur. Mm. We started sniffing around this when we were talking to people that had overseen really incredible change. And almost all of them wished they had gone faster and done more. And yet, when we talk to people that are about to do meaningful change, they all want to take more time and do less. Everyone, <laughs> all the well-wishers, all the yeah. institutional yeah. people, all are saying... Take longer, do less. <laughs> if you remember the summer of 2020 and the demonstrations in the big cities, just seeing the crowds and how diverse they were and how we felt close to one another and how we felt engaged in an important project. And then it's so deflating when it fizzles out without any tangible action. Yeah. It just results in endless conversations about difficulties, why this cannot happen, why that is difficult. And so if somehow as an organization or as a country, I think if you can seize of these emotional highs, that's got to be incredibly valuable. In your work with companies, have you seen instances where companies manage to sort of create this emotional high, this energy that then pulls everyone along? In fact, that's the only thing I've seen work. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to stake a claim before we're successful that we're going to try really hard for companies. They much rather like silently do it and then claim that they did it. So we're going to say that this is what we're going to go after. And then we're meaningfully going to go after it. Mm. I'll give you an illustrative example of an organization that had a big awakening in the summer of 2020. They have like five generations of employees working there, many races working there, but the races are super homogenous at the top and the bottom of the organization. So it's mostly white people at the top and mostly people of color at the bottom. And they have 
realize that they must be contributing to it and that it's not possible that this is like everyone rising to their own abilities and they're collectively going after it. And it's a beautiful thing. But that company was an exception, not the rule. The rule was companies starting out with ambitious goals, but then realizing how hard it was, how tricky it was, and then paring back the ambition, deciding to do less and to take longer. I find it so interesting because if you think about this past year, we've endured two parallel crises. One was, of course, the pandemic and the accompanying lockdown, and then the national reckoning we had over racial justice. And with respect to the first crisis, the pandemic, the economic shutdown, you heard so many executives say, you cannot waste a crisis. And so we're going to use this crisis as an opportunity to remake our operations, to upgrade our systems. So you actually had a significant number of companies use the pandemic as an opportunity to do some pretty radical things operationally. And then if you compare that to the crisis that we're experiencing around racial justice, you see a much more incremental approach. Mm -hmm. You don't have the same critical mass of companies deciding that they're not going to waste this crisis. And so how should companies begin to build the proper framework by which to think about this? How do they develop action plans? What does strategy look like? How do you even know what to do? So I'll answer all of that, but I'm going to give a meta response first, which is we know how to solve hard problems. This is another hard problem that is fraught with emotion. It's the fraught with emotion part that's difficult. It's not the solving of the problem. I mean, I can lay out the action plan. I can point you to the action plans. That part's not hard. Mm -hmm. What's hard is that we all bring an unbelievable amount of emotion to issues of race. So true. And like, that's the hard part. The rest of it, it's so doable. You know, the way I talk about it, I'm like, look, we can provide everything except for the will. I was speaking with a group of black executives. They were like, we are tired of having our success dictated by the will of other people. But honestly, it's the courage to confront the emotion is the missing ingredient. And have you seen companies that do this very successfully? Yeah. So I'll tell you the organization that's like a walking role model for it is Microsoft. Mm -hmm. And Microsoft made a pivot to inclusion like six years ago. And it's how they went from very good to like freaking phenomenal. And if you look at what they've done, And they believe in inclusion for all, like they get the whole thing. And they've done it with 200,000 employees. Mm -hmm. So let me give you one fun fact about what Microsoft does. 360 evaluations are notoriously horrific for women and people of color. Horrific. Now, this shouldn't be a surprise to anyone who's listening because we all know the Heidi and Harold case study that shows if you do a case and you just change the gender People have very different emotional differences, and the same is true for race. So we know that people say dopey things when race and gender changes. We know that people have different evaluations. And yet, we use 360-degree evaluations as if none of that research exists. We then take what people say and we act on it, right? It's terrible. (laughs) So here's something that Microsoft does. It's not the evaluations that you're given that I care very much. It's the evaluations that you give. If you give evaluations where you really see people, where it's improvement-oriented, where you can help make people better as a result of your evaluations, ah, 
that is what I want to consider for promotion. If you give everyone the same narrow evaluation, you're not doing a very good job. So it's not that I don't think evaluations can be helpful, but we're using them in precisely the wrong way. Hmm. So Microsoft looks at how you develop people and how you evaluate people. And is there a richness to it? And not this like little, you know, superficial way of doing it. And it matters and it makes people better at it. It's a great example. That is a great example. You know, you mentioned earlier how when you're talking about race, the fact that emotion plays such a pervasive role in every conversation, it makes it difficult sometimes to see clearly. The reverse of that is what happens when you don't address it, right? Yeah. I mean, I would love to hear you talk a little bit about what you've learned about what it feels like to be in an organization that is insufficiently addressing this particular crisis. So a technique that we have found that's particularly helpful since the summer of 2020 is that when you talk to a group of people and you surface the indignities that they're suffering, and indignities are like the slight, the small nicks, none of them are fatal, but collectively they're exhausting, and collectively they could end up with, as soon as I have a better alternative, I'm leaving. So what we have found is that if we can surface the indignities for any group, a couple of things happen. One is it's startling how enthusiastic people want to contribute to the indignities list, that they want to just tell you what they are. <laughs> so when you go and look, when there's a group you care about, go and surface the indignities. Often it helps to bring a group together so that momentum gets built when you hear one person start talking about it. Uh -huh. Surface the group's indignities list. It's often for saying, have you experienced or you have observed other people experience? Because that like lessens mm. the part of it. But surface the indignities list and then create a parallel dignities list. And my experience is it costs like $5. Like, there's usually nothing on the indignities list that's expensive, but none of it was knowable unless you went and talked to people. So, Francis, how often is it particular circumstances, say, I don't know, I don't have access to the same cafeteria, those kinds of issues, and how often on this list do you find that it's behaviors, things people do or things people don't do and you wish they would? Well, I'll tell you, it's almost always an oversight. So rarely is something on the indignities list that somebody intended to cause a lack of dignity. I was thinking so many of these indignities that you refer to are so subtle, except when you've experienced them and then you see them everywhere. Then you see them everywhere. Oh, my but God. The classic one is there are people who just get talked over in meetings or their comments just get lost. Mm -hmm. No one's paying mm -hmm. attention to them. And if you are keyed into that dynamic, you see it everywhere. everywhere. And All yet if you're time. not, you never see it. Yeah. And I'm struck by how there's so many of these. Yeah. And once the toggle switch is flipped on, you can no longer not see it. Exactly. That's right. Yeah. You right. notice it every time. It's like who gets greeted in a group of people and who doesn't get greeted. Yeah. And then once you notice that, oh my God, it's only a group of three or four people. They don't greet everyone. Then all of a sudden you see it all the time. It's not uncommon. So that's why it really is these indignities. It's like the people that don't, like, I personally choose to suffer silently. I don't want to make a thing out of it. And so what we have to do is go surface yeah. and find out, oh my gosh, there's a lot of people suffering silently. Yeah. And again, I've never seen it be very costly. Okay, before we wrap this up, Francis, you consult with a bunch of companies 
what are some of the most common questions executives ask you for their help on? How to attract and retain great women. And what is your response to that? If you want to attract great women, one is if you don't know where great women are, great women know where great women are. <laughs> I love that one. If you have problems finding them, ask great women. They know where this they are. This is so they true. This is absolutely yeah. true. Now the next one is, so let's say you can find them. How do you get them to yes? Well, I can tell you how you get them to no. Act like you're interested and then pause to get your ducks in a row and don't communicate with them for like three or four or five weeks. Because <laughs> women are used to getting mixed messages and we'll just lump you in with everyone else who sends mixed messages and we will not think you're serious. <laughs> <laughs> what else is on that checklist? When you're recruiting, don't do the dance of salary where, you know, I'm going to say this and that. Make them the best offer you can. Do not require negotiation. Because if we find out later that it was simply that we didn't ask in the right way, we're going to be furious. Keep going. This is so good. Assume that a woman has a context. And the context is either as a parent or of parents, has a partner that requires something. Just assume that a woman has a context and recruit their entire context. Francis, let's say you are trying to recruit great black executives would the same checklist apply? It does. But people more often feel more comfortable asking it about gender, but the exact same checklist applies for race and intersectionality. And honestly, it applies to everyone. Like my big experience in all of this work is when you make the world better for women, you make it better for everyone. When you make the world better for black women, you make it better for everyone. It's so interesting that you say this because as you went through the list, I thought, hmm, this applies to me. <laughs> And this applies to me as well. <laughs> and then the third yeah. story also it's applied not a to me. Five. I don't yeah. like negotiating for my salary. No, it's Who horrible does? <laughs> to rely on somebody's negotiating savvy on whether or not you're treating them equitably. I find that all of this applies to everyone, but we found it by getting at the indignities for some. That's beautiful. That's really interesting. So listen, we are out of time. We need to have you back on once a year, at least. What do you say? My answer to young me and to Felix is always yes before the question is asked. <laughs> <laughs> oh, now you're living dangerously. <laughs> no, but here's why I'm really serious about it. I think this is one of these conversations that you have to have over and over and over again. Because all of us, we need to refine our thinking about it. We need to share what we've discovered to be best practice for us. And I think talking about that helps. And I think we all experience the world in different ways. And we need to share that with each other. So when I say, what have you seen in organizations? There might be some overlap with what I've seen or what Felix has seen, but it's not perfect overlap. So the more we can talk about these things and surface these things, I think it really helps. And what I always love about the conversations with you, Francis, is usually in this context, it's 80% about the difficulties and the challenges. And then maybe we have a little time to come to solutions and celebrate successes. And with you, it's always the other way around. It's always about what works, what was successful, where companies did make progress. So and I find that so refreshing. It leaves me with a great deal of optimism. What Anne and I call that is bringing some can-do a lesbian spirit to the problems. Okay. <laughs> 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 oh, 
So, Francis, one of the things I love about our friendship is when I give you a to-do list, you always follow it. So one of the things I asked you to do was to bring in a recommendation. And so I feel very confident you did. (laughs) Felix, by the way, are you taking notes? I hope you are. Because you and me here, it's like herding cats. All right. I'm scribbling furiously. Can't you tell? (laughs) Well, Felix, you just gave away my answer in your comment there. Oh, really? Yeah, my answer is introducing people to a company in an app called Scribble.cool. <laughs> and it's a whiteboard that if you have Scribble.cool, I'm writing. You can be anywhere in the world. You log on to Scribble.cool. You don't have an account. You put in a four-digit code, and you too can not only watch it live, scroll on your own, but I can give you right privileges and you can contribute to it. Have you used this thing, mm-hmm. Felix? I have Francis seen use it. I have not used it myself. And what were your impressions on seeing Francis use it? I was actually wondering about what you just explained, Francis, whether it can be interactive so that many people, because when I saw you use it, it was only you scribbled and you know everybody else read or tried to read. <laughs> you guys are <laughs> unimpressed with my no, no, scribbles is what I'm taking away no. from this. I liked some of the figures. I like the fact that there's different colors so you can sort of see where we are in the conversation. So Mahir and I recently did something on Clubhouse and we both wrote on it. Oh. So I would like you to ask Mahir when he comes back if yes. he thinks that's that much that better. Good. Much yeah. better because you can actually read yeah. his handwriting. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that is a nice, that's a nice uh, recommendation. That, that, yeah, I'm hearing nice, not great, but that's okay. No, 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 no. It's very a useful. very useful no? recommendation. Yeah. <laughs> Felix, you want to go next? Yes, so I have a movie recommendation. It's really worth watching. The Man Who Sold His Skin is a crazy story. It's a love story about a person who gets separated from the love of his life. It's a story about a person with a tattoo that then turns into art that can be sold and resold. It is unusual in how it's shot. And it's sometimes hard to watch. It's <laughs> it's one of these movies where you're not so sure, do I like anyone in this story? Huh. But at the same time, I found it completely mesmerizing. You know how I watch many movies that I really enjoy watching them, and then they're also a little forgettable at the same time. This is not that. <laughs> I'm not going to forget it, and I've never seen it. <laughs> wow, okay, that's a fascinating one. So my pick this week is I have discovered electric bikes, <laughs> which I know is kind of like cheating. So my husband during the pandemic has gone into biking. I don't like biking as much as he does. But what I've discovered, so an electric bike, and there are lots and lots of different models out there, and some of them are quite expensive, but there's a brand called Rad Power Bikes. And they sell more affordably priced electric bikes that are super funky looking. And so I got one and, you know, you still pedal, but it gives you just that little something, something. A little you push. Know? Yeah. yeah. Just yeah. that little extra, extra. I mean, have either of you guys ever been on one of these things? So I had my first electric bike experience when I traveled. Uh, I think I was in Japan and the hotel had electric bikes. Okay. It was a fabulous experience because, you know, when you bike and you don't know the area and yes. you think, oh my God, I'm going to get lost. I'm going to get really tired and never make it back to my hotel. And just knowing that the battery was there and that riding back would be easy. 
It was incredibly liberating. It, it was does, really right? quite fantastic. It does. And you don't use it, the motor all the time. You just, you know, a little something, something. Yeah, that one had a dial and you could choose. And, you know, the longer you ride, the more you dial up. Yes. I was at Uber when they were just getting into electric bikes and like many things. I was like, this is crazy. <laughs> <laughs> and you still think they're crazy? No, it's a beautiful thing. Right? When I finally got on one, because I judged it without getting on it. <laughs> when I finally got on one, it reminded me when my brother used to train for marathons and he would go for a run and my sister would ride a bike. This was before electric bikes. And he would have to push her up the hills. <laughs> <laughs> I should have known there'd be a great purpose for it. Exactly. So I think there's fantastic product market fit here. <laughs> but anyway, Francis, thank you again for coming coming on. So Francis, you can be found three times a week on Clubhouse. Tuesday and Thursday nights at 8 p.m., Saturdays at 4 p.m. And you take questions from folks on Clubhouse. You have guests on there. You do all kinds of stuff, right? All kinds of things. We have a case discussion every Tuesday night, and then it's Anything Goes on Thursdays and Saturdays. Fantastic. And yeah. your book is? Unleashed, The Unapologetic Leader's Guide to Empowering Everyone Around You. It's by Francis Fry and Ann Morris. It is a must-read. And that's it. Thanks, everybody, for listening. A huge shout-out to our sound engineer extraordinaire, Peter Linane. This is After Hours from the HBR Podcast Network. Support for the show comes from Brooks Running. I'm so excited because I have been a runner, gosh, my entire adult life. And for as long as I can remember, I have run with Brooks Running Shoes. Now I'm running with a pair of Ghost 16s from Brooks. Incredibly lightweight shoes that have really soft cushioning. It feels just right when I'm hitting my running trail that's just out behind my house. You now can take your daily run in the better than ever Ghost 16. You can visit brooksrunning.com to learn more.